0: Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum. And today I'm joined by two guests. I have Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Yael Mizrahi Arnaud, a Research Assistant at Council on Foreign Relations. And they have recently authored a really fascinating report uh, called Is Israel in Democratic Decline? about the rise of illiberalism in Israel. And right on the eve of the Israeli Knesset elections, uh, this is a really important topic to be talking about. So just to jump right into it, um, the report that you both authored uh, talks about the rise of illiberal uh, democracy in Israel. Could you uh, step back and define liberal democracy as as a foil to the illiberalism that you describe in your report?
1: Uh, sure, Evan. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having us on. Uh, this is a report we've been working on for some months, and it's really great to have it out in the world just in advance of the Israeli elections, where all of these issues are are right here in front of us. Um, so, typically, we think about democratic systems as having two components: the the sort of process elements of democracy, elections mostly, and then what. A lot of people call democratic values, but what I would call liberal values, which are the sort of norms that enable democracy to sustain itself and not just fall into kind of majoritarian mob rule. And those are things like um, the protection of legal equality, uh, the idea that um, if you lose power in election, you cede peacefully Uh, that everybody has an equal opportunity to speak and participate uh, and um, including, you know, civil rights and civil liberties. And it's those values elements of democracy that kind of keep democracy alive over the long term. Uh, There are examples in the world of illiberal democracies uh, where those civil liberties have been degraded. But they don't usually stay democracies over the long run.
0: And in terms of the transition from a liberal democracy to an illiberal democracy, you describe uh, populism as a driving force in causing the shift to happen. And you talk about these two forms of populism uh, that can take hold in different countries. And you see taking hold in Israel, uh, these thick and thin populism. Um, could you talk a little about that and how that's playing out in the Israeli political system and even uh, specifically in the current election campaign?
2: So let's start by defining the difference between thick and thin populism. Thin populism is when politicians draw support by claiming to represent the marginalized, the little people from the out-of-touch political class. We have seen this before in Yair Lapid's uh, Yesh rhetoric, as well as Aryeh Dery and Shas they feel that they're overcoming the marginalization that has been dealt at the, from the hands of the Ashkenazi elites. Thick populism is differentiated because it's when politicians work to enshrine, define and enforce a narrow view of the legitimate and natural polity, thereby you're excluding some that don't fit. Uh, Anyone who is in disagreement or opposition to the leader's views becomes an outsider and they're controlled by outsiders or sent by outsiders. So the thick populism that we see is personified mainly by Netanyahu's Likud party. Uh, You can see that evident in the election campaign where he has labeled uh, uh, leftists as traitors. Uh, He regularly uses uh, racially tinged rhetoric against the Arab population of Israel, Um, but it's not limited to Netanyahu. We also see it on the right in Ayelet Shaked and Naftali Bennett's New Right Party, and as well as Avigdor Lieberman, um, the former, to take a nativist populist view whereby they see greater Israel and the Jews as the sole uh, legitimate uh, polity within the state of Israel uh, and thereby excluding minorities as well as uh, African asylum seekers, and also leftists who don't share their same view of greater Israel.
0: Right, there seems to be this, like, development of a sort of catch-all boogeyman of, like, the left that includes, like, the Arabs, the uh, dissidents, NGOs, civil society, and um, you write a little about that, about these laws that have been passed or proposed um, to limit or at least publicly shame the activities of some of these organizations that are active in... Israel. Um, are there any kinds of safeguards against this? Uh, is, is this sort of an inevitable tide that's just going to keep going? Or, or is there something that's going to curb these trends as they play out in Israel?
1: Well, I think the first thing to understand is that this phenomenon of thick populism, of illiberal populism, is not unique to Israel. This is something that we have seen growing in a number of European countries. In fact, um, in Hungary, we've seen illiberal populism really take over the political system and degrade Hungary's democracy. Same thing in Turkey. Uh, And we see manifestations of that same kind of illiberal populism here in the United States. Anywhere uh, political leaders claim that those who disagree with them are not merely political opponents, but are illegitimate. They're not really parts of the nation. They should be disregarded and excluded. Delegitimizing your opposition that way is a hallmark of illiberal populism. But in order for this kind of illiberal populism to actually degrade the functioning of democratic government, it's not enough just to label people rhetorically. You have to um, begin to enshrine that view in the way you run government in law and policy. And so what we tried to do in this uh, study is look at the extent to which beyond the rhetoric, which can be quite ugly in Israel, um, beyond the rhetoric, are there signs that populists are implementing this narrow view of who belongs, who's really Israeli in law and politics? Are they wielding the state's authority in a way so that only some people get the equal protection of the law? Are they using the state to provide benefits for their followers or to take benefits away from their opponents? And very importantly, are they working to suppress the kind of independent civil society movements that hold government accountable, that challenge the claims of populists, and that bring other groups in the population forward to advocate for their own policies with the government? And I think as we looked at the Israeli scene, um, it's that last category where I think we see the most troubling signs, where, as you noted, Evan, these, some of these legal proposals to take away tax benefits from leftist NGOs um, or simply to, to slap a label on leftist NGOs, because most of them depend on funding from foreign governments, uh, to label them so that they are seen as separate, as different, as somehow not as Israeli as other NGOs who may also get foreign funding, but they don't get it from foreign right. That's
0: an interesting point because there's the whole issue with uh, with some of the funding for these pro-settlement NGOs that a lot of it comes from maybe private American donors. I mean, you look at our own uh, American ambassador uh, to Israel now, who who. Uh, in his capacity as a private citizen before he was a diplomat, uh, was at the head of American Friends of Beitel settlement. So um, it's an interesting contrast between like the leftist NGOs who may get some funding from, say, like the European Union governments and these right-wing ones that are getting from private donors.
1: Right. And, and who's to say what's legitimate or illegitimate in terms of funding that comes in from outside a country to NGOs inside that country? I mean, Uh, most human rights uh, activists and human rights lawyers would say that civil society organizations, that, that citizens inside a country have the right to free association. That means they have the right to connect with people in other countries who share their views and get support from them, that they have the right to engage with governments abroad and get support from them. So um, the notion that it's that an organization is somehow illegitimate because it gets support from outside the country is something that most human rights activists would see as contrary to international human rights law.
0: Right. No. It's a, it's a it's a disturbing trend to see t- uh, taking hold. Um, one of the elements of the report that I wanted to highlight in terms of the the. Uh, push back against these trends though um, was the way that um, different cross sections of society uh, sort of go against this uh, move towards exclusionary or more sectoral themes and one of the ones that you wrote about was uh, the role of women and uh, women running for office and how that sort of uh, goes over partisan divides and, and sectoral divides so I don't know um, if you could elaborate on that a little more I'm um, gonna explain for our listeners uh, how that um, is taking shape in Israel.
2: Sure. So it's important to just recognize that uh, women's issues are important to all sectors of society, um both Arab, both Jewish, all political parties. I mean, this is not an issue that is uh, that is marginalized to right or left. And most interestingly, we also see it now coming up within the Haredi parties, which before and currently still um, women are barred from uh, the Knesset lists. Um, And that's been challenged mainly, um, mainly successfully. Uh, We have seen the parliamentary um, and the municipal elections that happened in October um, a mayor of Beit Shemesh, Michal Bloch, was uh, a woman. Managed to win. And that was the first. I've also seen women winning mayorships in in other cities. But what's interesting is that women's issues are both being uh, used as a rallying cry to unite different parts of society, as well as women taking political action into their own hands. Uh, we can see there's a, a labor uh, member of the list Michal Zonowitsky, who um, she's a ultra orthodox woman, and she is having a lot of trouble with the orth- with the m- male orthodox monopoly, which is uh, she's seen put her interests uh, second. So now that she's running uh, on the labor list, which tradition traditionally you know was the secular party, uh, we can see that there are cross-cutting alliances between different sectors of the society that are, you know, uh, overruling any partisan divide. Uh, we've also seen that in the Arab sector. Um, uh, members of Knesset from Hadash have openly spoken against Arabs boycotting the elections because then their interests are marginalized, and specifically on women's issues, because there's been a strong... Uh, outpouring of um, alliances uh, in the past year after uh, a spate of domestic violence that uh, took the lives of many young Israeli girls, both uh, Ethiopians, Arabs, and Jews. And so the only way to counter this is if you have a strong group of women that come together and are going to force their politicians to change their rhetoric and it's uh, not only the rhetoric, their policy, but it's it's interesting to see how this is how they're challenging their politicians, because one of the ways that populism is thriving in Israel is through identity politics. So the politicians end up galvanizing their base by using exclusionary rhetoric that's based on identity politics. So it's pitting the secular against the religious, the Jews against the Arabs the doves against the hawks, the right against the left, uh, and that kind of overshadows the more pernicious and important issues that are plaguing Israeli society. And we can see that now in the election campaign, where actual policy issues are really not on the docket, uh, and people, you know, people, it's not that Israel doesn't have domestic issues, but their politicians realize that that's not what's going to win them votes.
0: So you talked a lot about the role of identity politics in Israel and and the division of the political system into factions based on different identities. What do you make then of this move by some of the more uh, sectoral-oriented parties to try to have a more national orientation. I feel like in this election specifically, you've seen like uh, Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Beiteinu, like he's trying to you know, not just mark himself as being for the Russian-speaking Israelis, and Khadash is trying to really drive home that it's not just for uh, Israeli Arabs. And you write about that in the report, even, that even though they have an ideological orientation, they're the Israeli Communist Party, they're identified more just as an Arab party. Um, and uh, Shas also, um, you know, that that's not just in this election, uh, tries to not just market itself towards religious voters, um, or even Bennett and Shaket leaving the Jewish Home Party and not wanting to be just associated with the national religious and the settlers.
1: But, um, you have a lot of smaller parties in Israel that have been able to survive uh, and thrive by representing the narrow interests of a specific identity group, you know, uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union or um, uh, national religious or Mizrahi traditional Jews, right? Or, uh, or Arab uh, citizens of Israel. And, you know, th- there is, a, at a certain point, there's kind of a natural growth limit for those parties. And one of the interesting manifestations in the current campaign is how many of those smaller uh, identity politics based parties, parties that are really almost like little interest groups um, how many of them are so close to the electoral threshold that they might not even get into the Knesset, they might not get enough votes to get into the Knesset Uh, Avigdor Lieberman, you know who a few years ago was talking about how he wanted to be prime minister his party may not actually meet the electoral threshold in these uh, in these elections, we'll see next week, and you know it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Is that because um, because people in Israeli society are integrating more across those boundaries of identity politics? So, for example, uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Now we have the second generation, and soon a third generation. Uh, a voting age, and maybe they don't feel as wedded to that post-Soviet identity as their parents who actually made the immigration. So maybe they're just going to look for who's going to represent their economic interests or their geographic interests um, rather than their identity interests. Uh, Both Arab Israelis and ultra-Orthodox are participating more in the economy Uh, Now than they were 10 years ago. And so that over the long term, if those trends continue, that threatens the electoral strength of those identity-based parties. I'd like to say that that means that 10 years from now or 20 years from now, Israel won't be driven by identity politics. But I think it's hard to assume that. Because what we see is that identity politics actually works really well for most Israeli politicians to hold on to power. And because it's based in things that are so basic to people, how they think about themselves, how they think about their family and their community, um, it, it works politically at a much more powerful level than arguments based in you know tax policy or food subsidies or housing costs or things that are more complicated. Um, the problem with it is that it leaves people's real material interests unrepresented in the system. And I think that's what we see now in the example that Yael gave of uh, cross-cutting coalitions amongst women in Israeli society is that there are issues um, that women have with education with domestic violence um, with uh, labor force participation with sexual harassment that are simply not being addressed in the political system today and so women are coming together across identity lines to try and force those issues onto the agenda
0: it'll definitely be interesting to see if the identity focused uh, parties can pass the threshold or if uh things that are more universal, like the trends uh, and interests surrounding uh, women voters that you just uh, described uh, take precedence in the election. Um, these trends overall, what's the chronology for this? When, when do you see this all having started to take hold in Israel? Um, is this something Recent, um, since the beginning of, of this most recent election cycle, um, is it the past ten years of, of Netanyahu in office? Um, where, where does this? What are the roots of all of this?
1: Well, I mean, you could say that in a certain way, um, the Likud used identity politics, populist identity politics arguments when um, when it ran in 1977 when Menachem Begin first took power from uh, from the, the labor, uh, founders of the state of Israel. Uh, you know, this notion that the downtrodden, the Mizrahim, um, were being excluded from the halls of power, that their interests were unrepresented and that Likud was going to lift up the little guy against the elites. I mean, that, that was the origins of this populist trend. Um, but at that time, it was thin populism. It was the kind Yael described at the beginning of, you know, the little guy against the elites, it was not framed in such exclusionary terms that the little guy is the only real Israeli and everybody else is not, you know, not really patriotic and shouldn't really belong here. Um, that, I think, is a more recent development uh, coming out of Netanyahu's leadership of the Likud, yes, um, but also coming out of a turn in Uh, the national religious movement and in the settler movement uh, that really claimed the mantle of Israeli nationalism for the settler movement and began to look at those who didn't agree with the settler movement as somehow not really patriots.
2: Let me just add that, um, like Tamara said, um, Likud has always used the Mizrahi to uh, kind of attack the left because labor didn't do a good job of integrating Mizrachim when they came to Israel in the 50s. But we also see that the Histadrut, when it was created, was focused much more on nation building. That was their primary goal. And they weren't addressing uh, issues like class politics um, or other divisions within society. So they kind of left the environment ripe for politicians to, to use these divides. So Let me say that when we're looking at the different identities within Israeli society, whether it's Arab or Jewish, religious or secular, Ashkenazi or Mizrahi, these identities we see are highly correlated with specific issues, such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, such as the Jewish versus democratic dilemma within Israeli society. And so when you have these divides, such as religious, secular, or Israeli Arabs versus Israeli Jews, you're then really blurring some of the other issues that society still faces, specifically such as class politics or gender issues, because the debate and the divide over these issues is so stark and easily can take up all of the air in an election cycle. And that just drives politicians to year after year, not really deal with these issues in a way that is making, um, you know, the citizens happy. Israel still has uh, quite a high uh, inequality and uh, quite a bad level of uh, poverty and even child poverty for a country that is so small and also uh, part of the OECD. You know, I, I think Yael is making a really
1: important Point here, which is, and it, it's one of the ways in which the uh, ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians really colors and, and suffuses Israeli domestic politics. Um, beyond just the way in which security issues figure into a political campaign, um, the, the existence of the conflict and the sense of threat uh, and insecurity that both Israeli Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians feel living amidst this conflict kind of reinforces the ability of politicians to use identity and to use the politics of fear to mobilize voters. So it becomes much easier for politicians to go to identity and to go to the politics of fear than to build policy platforms that address these kinds of socioeconomic issues, or the, the other issues of social cohesion within Israeli society, like um, relations between religious and secular, or relations between the Ethiopian community um, and, and other communities that have been in Israel for a longer period of time. And so, you know, when, poli- when politicians have it easy um, relying on the politics of fear, you know why would they bother to address these other issues? It's it's just work that they don't need to do in order to get the votes they need to win, um, and and so that's a way in which we don't usually think about the Israeli Palestinian conflict as affecting Israeli politics, but it it does. It affects it very very profoundly. The other way in which um, the ongoing conflict kind of shapes this uh, populist politics is, you know, the fact that people feel this pervasive sense of insecurity um, means that they often kind of look at their political opponents through the lens of the conflict, even when the person standing in front of them isn't making a dissenting argument about policy toward the conflict. They may be making a dissenting argument on the question of, for example, you know, whether NGOs should be able to get foreign funding. Um, but politicians are able to use identity politics to put everybody either into the with us box or the against us box. And you know so po- populist politicians on the right um, are able to say, you know, those people over there, um, they don't want to keep you safe. The secularists don't want to keep you safe. you know the leftists don't want to keep you safe. The communists don't want to keep you safe. The NGOs don't want to keep you safe. And and of course, none of those things, secularism, communism, have anything to say necessarily about your politics on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there's a certain assumption that these identities stack up into very, very clear black and white categories.
0: Right. It's interesting because the left-right axis in Israel is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and about your, your opinions on, on territorial concessions, not necessarily uh, any more about economic issues or social issues, um, which might take precedence um, in a situation like in the United States. Um, I want to take a step back to the beginning um, and just ask a broader question. Um, When we were talking about liberal democracy and what defines liberal democracy, uh, you mentioned, uh, Tamara, democratic norms, um, that they were one of the key components of uh, liberal democracy. It's it's a a, a system of values. Um, So my question is, was there ever really a golden age of uh, liberal democracy in Israel? Because you mentioned 1977 as sort of a turning point when Menachem Begin and Likud take power from the Labour Party and its antecedents. But Israel under Labour in the first 29 years was a, um, you know, a, a, a system in which the Labour Party dominated not just in the political system, but in a lot of spheres of society. Um, Israeli Arabs until 1966 were living under uh, a military, uh, military regime. And, um, you know, a whole lot of other things that weren't necessarily things I, I think we would identify with liberal democracies.
1: Look, I think you're pointing to some realities of Israeli democratic politics that always um, that limited the extent to which Israel functioned well as a democracy uh, and in particular the status of Palestinian citizens of Israel until 1966, um, was a hard limit on, uh, Israeli democracy. Um, and there are still both formal and informal forms of discrimination against Arab citizens of Israel today, uh, that constrain the extent to which you can say that Israel is a fully, uh, equal or fully liberal democracy. But let's be honest, no democracy, you know, meets that golden standard. The United States of America does not meet that golden standard we sometimes talk about a golden age in American society, but you know, if we're talking about the 1950s, let's remember that that was an era when a whole segment of our population lived under Jim Crow, lived under segregation was excluded from The benefits of political participation in many ways. And it took a tremendous national struggle to overcome that. And we still have all kinds of forms of institutional discrimination in our system that we need to root out. It's the nature of democratic systems that they are imperfect and they have flaws. But the hallmark of democracy, as opposed to other forms, of political uh, systems, other regimes, is that democracy includes within it mechanisms to self-correct, mechanisms by which groups within society can organize, can advocate, can participate in order to make changes that improve inclusion, that improve equality. Um, And it's, you know, it is um, not only voting in an election that makes that happen, although that is the bottom line way to make that change happen. But it's also being able to protest freely in the streets. It's also being able to file a lawsuit, including a lawsuit against the government if you think it's done you wrong. And so the institutions of democracy are not just political parties and elections. The institutions of a functioning democracy also include the courts. They include the press. Um, and they include some. Right, I, I guess I should
0: uh, reframe the way I was asking it because you, you raise a good point. I don't mean to single out Israel or to suggest that this is a problem unique to Israel. Um, I guess where I'm going is: are things necessarily getting worse in the grand in the grand scheme of things? Because today, um, like you mentioned, um, Israeli Arabs do face a lot of discrimination, but they're not living under a military regime any, uh, anymore. Um, in the early years, they were sort of de facto banned from the major Jewish Zionist parties. They only had like the satellite Arab parties, but now they have uh, like larger independent uh, political parties.
1: I, I see what you're saying. I mean, what I would argue is that Israel has made strides in integration in certain ways. It is certainly the case that the labor parties rule in the early years of the state Included a certain degree of exclusion, um, I think more informal than formal, of Mizrahim from political and economic power. Uh, and that has been, that's an issue that Israeli politics has worked to address over recent decades. I think what's changed that I find troubling is um, this rhetorical turn toward seeing political opponents as traitors, as disloyal, as illegitimate, as foreign agents, and an attempt by populist parties on the right, not merely to say those things and persuade people of those things, but to enshrine those ideas in law. That, that to me, is the most troubling development in terms of uh, Israel remaining a healthy democracy.
2: I would also add two things that uh, Israelis are worried about, and also specifically in the upcoming election. The first is the public's tolerance for bribery, bribery and corruption. The second is the independence of Israel's courts. So in the first instance, we see that it's an unprecedented situation in Israeli politics that a prime minister who is facing three indictments is running for office. Um, specifically in 1977 Yitzhak Rabin who um, had a scandal involving an illegal bank account for his wife in Washington was forced to resign over this Uh, and the same for uh, Hud Olmert who resigned before a hearing and uh, just after the indictments were issued so the fact that Netanyahu can still engage in this election campaign and also get the number of seats that we've seen. Uh, Likud hasn't been diminished by, by these accounts. The, the people seem to be inured to his uh, accused bribery and corruption. So that's the first issue. The second is degrading the independence of the courts. Uh, I think that this is an unprecedented situation in Israeli in the in the legislative aspect, because um, with the form with the Minister of Justice Ayala Shaked, she claims that she's pushing back against the very activist uh, 1990s um, rule of the Supreme Court, um, and she's looking to rein in their freedom, specifically uh, in the last Knesset. There were, bills, there were bills proposed for an override clause. An override clause would mean that the Knesset, with a majority, would be able to vote down any uh, Supreme Court decisions that they deem, uh, you know, uh, that they don't like. Um, specifically, these Supreme Court decisions are in the realm of uh, human rights. Uh, we saw this come to the fore with the asylum seekers issue, and the Supreme Court issued a uh, injunction against the deportation of asylum seekers, and the Knesset rejected these um, rejected these uh, you know protections of human rights, and so she sees her mandate as continuing to rein in the powers of the Supreme Court because her argument is that the Supreme Court wasn't elected by the people and while the Knesset was. So this is uh, fundamentally restructuring Israeli democracy in a way where separation of powers and checks and balances are, are really under threat.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that's uh, that's been taking hold in Israel for a while, is especially with the direction of the courts. Um, I was in Israel two, two years ago, um, and I remember seeing a like sticker on a on a signpost or something that said like end the dictatorship of the high court like this idea that it's not that's an unelected body and it's not necessarily representative of the people. Um so to so close things off, we're we're going into elections on Tuesday. Um I don't want to uh, presage the the results of the elections and 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 certainly um, there's been a lot of speculation and, and you know we could devote a whole other podcast to talking about the numbers and who's going to be able to form a coalition. Uh, my question is the next election after this one, which will probably be the first election that doesn't involve Netanyahu um, in some way, whether it's because he's retired or because he's in jail, his own party throws him out. Um, that that's probably the most realistic uh, opportunity for, for the next uh, for the first uh, election without Netanyahu. What can be done in Israel between now and within the next four years or less uh, to make uh, some of these trends or rather to ameliorate some of these trends and, and to dial back some of the more negative things that we've seen happening uh, in the Israeli political system?
1: I Okay, I guess I'll start. So I think that once Netanyahu is no longer leading the Likud party, there are quite a few uh, politicians who see themselves as leading candidates for uh, for the head of the Israeli right. They're not all in the Likud right now. Um, Naftali Bennett is one of them. Avigdor Lieberman is another. Um, Gidon Saar, who is a former... Likud, member of Knesset and minister, and, and is now looking to come back, um, you know, Moshe Kahlon, I, I think there are a lot of contenders. And one of the points we actually make in our, uh, in our paper is that the competition amongst these populist leaders is actually a source of resilience for the Israeli political system against the kind of populist takeover that we've seen in places like Turkey or Hungary, where you have one political leader who just sucks all the oxygen out of the system, nobody can compete with him, and he then labels all of his opponents as disloyal and changes the rules so that he can never lose another election. Um, that's pretty unlikely in the scenario, Evan, that, that you were looking forward to of a post-Netanyahu uh, political system. That said, I I think that um, the way in which Netanyahu's almost 10 years in power have structured debates in Israel and the rhetoric that has become normalized against Arab citizens of Israel, against the judiciary, against the media, against uh, leftist politicians, and against civil society, all of this, I think, sets a worrying uh, stage for post-Netanyahu politics. It suggests that those desiring to succeed Netanyahu might just try to amp up the rhetoric even more uh, to be more Netanyahu than Netanyahu was in order to to stake a claim to power. Um, What I hope will happen in these next few years are two things. Number one, that after this election, which has uh, included some of the most divisive, ugly, and I will say outright racist rhetoric and racist participants of any Israeli election I've seen in my lifetime. I hope that uh, people will take a little bit of a step back and think about the direction that they're headed and maybe leading members of Knesset can develop some kind of code of conduct for the way they talk about their political differences. Uh, that might be hoping for too much. The other thing I hope will happen is that we'll continue to see uh, organization within civil society uh, where some of these not well-represented social interests can press their case and maybe they will appear to a politician as a good constituency to try and win over as they bid for leadership. And that might bring Uh, the political debate a little bit further away from identity politics and in the direction of dealing with some of these social cohesion and socioeconomic issues that Israeli society really needs to face.
0: And Yael, what do you hope to see happen before the next uh, Israeli election?
2: So working off of what Tamara said, I think that we've been seeing now some political movements that seek to address these cross-cutting issues. There's an example we mentioned in the paper of Adina Bar-Shalom and Ahi Yisrael. Um, She includes members from a... She's Haredi herself, but there are members in the party that um, come from labor, as well as former uh, senior IDF members, and they look to reduce social inequality uh, and promote diverse Jewish identities, in a way that there are, we don't see political parties now who are addressing these issues and coming together from different um, different parts of society. So I would hope that these movements um, are able to gain a platform in order to address the society, in order for people to, to know about them and to give another option for those who don't feel like they're being represented by by their parties. And even if they, at the end of the day, you know, support one uh, party over another, we see that just in the last year, the rate of protests and the protest movement is kind of up again since 2011. And we have, uh, you know, people coming to the streets for LGBTQ issues, for women's issues, for Ethiopia for uh, violence and marginalization against the Ethiopian society. So if there isn't a politician who's going to come and address these issues um, through policy, then the protests will continue. And I hope that Israelis in civil society will be able to push their politicians to be more accountable. And uh, we already see that trend happening slowly, and I hope that it it continues to to gain, gain strength.
0: And as those trends develop, and if any of those things uh, pan out, we'll talk about them here on Israel Policy Pod. So Tamara, Yael, thank you uh, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, And the report uh, that they have authored is uh, called Is Israel in Democratic Decline? Um, And you can access it on the Brookings Institution website, and we'll put a link to it in the description of this podcast. Um, so you can read it yourself. It's a really great report, um, really interesting, and definitely a useful resource uh, to look at before Tuesday to provide some context uh, for what the results may look like. Um, So great. Thanks for, for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.